Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. I am uh, Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and so glad you're here for uh, worship with us this morning. This is uh, also uh, a morning where uh, we get to talk about God's great work of creation. Now, for those of you who are participating, you know that we're working through this thing called the New City Catechism. It's an annual Bible reading plan, and each week we get a topic on Monday. We read uh, some kind of scholarly thoughts on it or an ancient prayer, watch a little video, and, it, and then uh, it's asking a question and it gives the answer, and then all week long, we read a bunch of Bible verses that are related to the question for the week. Then the following Sunday, we will actually, uh, many uh, Sundays at least, we will talk about the topic that we've been reflecting on all week. And so this week's question was question five. What else did God create? God created all things by his powerful word, and all his creation was very good. Everything flourished under his loving rule. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Now, I didn't grow up with any sort of theology of creation other than the fact that I knew that God had created it. That's about, that's about all I really had growing up. It was, uh, I was uh, raised in the Catholic Church, and then when we left, it was shortly after my first Holy Communion. And um, we went to churches that were very good churches in many ways, but they had sort of a... Uh, a disproportionate focus on a very sliver, a very thin sliver of Christian theology, and it had to do with the end times. And if any of you have been part of groups like this, you know that like back then we were always talking about the rapture. The rapture was this, it's this biblical teaching that Jesus is going to return at some day, and he's going to bring, capture up all of the Christians who are here on the planet, and we're going to all go with him to heaven while the rest of the earth kind of goes bad. Uh, that was sort of, that was the kind of, and you know, in those days it was always about, you know, listen, Jesus is going to return and he could return before this very service is over. And he, like, so, you know, these were Hal Lindsley, Hal Lindsley, the late great planet Earth, and then there were the whole series of novels from, what was it, uh, Tim LaHaye, right? What were those called? The, uh, it was the, the Left Behind series, they had a whole, whole it was that many of them. Um, and uh, yeah, hold that, all that kind of stuff. That was sort of where I, where I uh, kind of cut some of my theological teeth, I guess you could say. And now I do believe in that. It's the, the theology actually, is, I still believe in the rapture, and I still believe that Jesus is going to return. And I do believe that he could come back even before this service ends. And so, you know, it's, it's real, it's true, I do believe this. Uh, but what, it, what the effect was, was together, that sort of combined to give me a sense of looking upward toward heaven and an escape from earth, rather than an idea of what life here on earth and the new creation might entail. 
So I didn't really develop any sort of theology of creation. Now if you kind of couple that with my family's political bent, uh, which was more toward you know, industry and business and capitalism and consumerism, um, then I guess you could say that my attitude toward the planet back in those days was earth first. Earth first. That was a, a key idea. As long as you followed it with, we'll strip mine the other planets later. Because that, <laughs> that was kind of the idea. You know, earth first, we'll strip mine the other planets later. And so I had no theology of creation care. Things have changed pretty drastically for me since those simplistic days. Humanity is having an increasingly negative impact on the planet. Many uh, researchers will point to endless amounts of data that will validate this to be true. 39% uh, in the last 40 years, 39% of terrestrial wildlife is gone. 39% of marine wildlife is gone. 76% of freshwater wildlife is gone. Four decades. That's how fast the decreases are going. And it doesn't matter where you're looking, if it's the oceans or the rivers or the forests or the air or the loss of species or habitats or climate change, whatever it might be, you will be able to find hundreds of research studies done showing the negative impact. Now, I don't, I'm not, I don't really want to debate this with you. My experience has been that we open up a debate like this, and it does, if you've got your mind made up, I haven't really found too many folks who will be swayed. You know, we sort of get ingrained in, like, an idea. So I'm not talking, um, you know, I'd encourage you to, you know, read a bunch of the papers and go to epa.gov and, you know, even check out the more conservative environmentalist organizations and kind of do some reading on those as well. But many of the indicators, the degree, of course, is open for much debate or discussion, but many indicators will say that humanity is having an increasingly negative impact on the planet, and it is my conviction. Christians, meanwhile, have been disturbingly quiet on this. And why is that? Why is, it we haven't, why is it that we haven't found our voice? And I wonder, maybe for many of us, it is that we've had an overemphasis on one part of our theology, you know, the rapture or the end times or the, our escape from this planet, which isn't really what the Bible teaches us. But this is the idea, not that we won't do the rapture, but that we won't actually escape the planet. It's going to be here in a new heaven and a new earth that humanity continues to exist. Or maybe we aren't really talking about it much because many of us want to talk about helping people rather than animals. You know, why in the world are you telling me to help the spotted owl when there are still hungry children in our country? Like why, you know, I, I, I can't have a greater priority than that. And so maybe that might, might be part of the issue. It seems very, a uh, very valid tension and conviction. It could also be for many of us that we simply have a rampant consumerism. And, you know, we all know how the sin nature kind of works its way into our hearts. We've talked about it enough here. And so maybe that uh, attitude is keeping us away from really having to confront what it is that our decisions are having, what kind of the impact our decisions are having. It just seems odd to me that for so many years, Christians have largely checked out of the conversation. Now, this is starting to shift a little bit. But this is particularly odd, especially when you consider that there is some reason to believe that it's 
a Christian heresy that is actually responsible for much of our flawed relationship with the earth. In a seminal article, it's older now, it was uh, somewhat prophetic, I think, uh, by Lynn White Jr. called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. He said, by, by destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. Modern science and modern technology is at least partly explained as a realization of the Christian dogma of man's transcendence of and rightful mastery over nature. But as we now recognize somewhat over a century ago, science and technology joined to give mankind powers which to judge by many of the ecological effects are out of control. If so, Christianity bears a huge burden of guilt. Now a lot of folks who interact with this just talk about the burden of guilt, but they don't, they, they fail to point out that it was a Christian heresy that got us here. It was actually a flaw in the thinking of Christians. And if it's a flaw, then that's something that can be fixed. And we can fix that heresy when we realize that the creation itself reveals the glory of God and that we, in fact, have been entrusted with it. So let's open up to Psalm 104 this morning and keep it open. We're going to be jumping in and out of the text, but open up to Psalm 104 and we're going to see what it is that we can learn about God's creation and our place in it. So right out of the gate, we get to see that God has this incredible power over the creation. He has power over the creation. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul, Lord, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. When scholars come to a text like this, they call it a theophany. And it usually shows the power of God. And that's really what this text is doing as well. It always shows up as the power of God in the creation. And they're always dramatic and very, very uh, visual kinds of scenes. And what we see in it is that God is, in fact, distinct from the creation. We're not talking about pantheism or anything like that. God is distinct. He actually has power over it. But just because he's distinct doesn't mean that he is distant from it. Just because he has power over it doesn't mean that he isn't in it, because there seems to be language indicating that in some way he is still in it. Like, for instance, he wraps himself in the creation. And I love this picture because God is an invisible spirit. And so how is it that we get to see or experience him? Well, according to this, he's, he's clothed himself in the creation. So we actually get to see him and experience him in the wonder of creation all around us. The more wonderful that creation, the more splendid that creation, the more splendid our experience of God is. He wraps himself in it. Now, he has power over creation, and of course, we are given power over creation as well. But I think we've long misconstrued this in this idea of having dominion over it. We kind of look at it as kind of an, an overlord. We get to extract from it whatever we want to meet our needs, our desires. But the word, as an example, that's used um, in uh, Genesis, when it's talking about Adam, it says, the Lord God took the man, 
put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That little phrase, that language that's used to describe what Adam was supposed to do in the garden, it's the same language that's used later in the book of Numbers to describe what the priests do in the temple. So the role that Adam had in creation wasn't an overlord as much as it was a steward, even a priest. He has a priestly function. The creation is, in a sense, the temple of God. And Adam, our representative, and thereby us, we are actually priests of this creation. So what do priests do? Well, we mediate between the people and God. And so as priests in God's kingdom, we're actually meant to go after God's interests, to pursue his interests, to make sure that the goal of the creation is met, which, of course, was to reveal the splendor of God, among many other things. So that's how we're supposed to interact with it, as priests. Now, whatever function you would give to priests in, your, in kind of your understanding of how they ought to interact with people in the world and all that kind of stuff, that's what's been ascribed to humanity in our relationship to the created order. We're mediating in the created order, representing God's interests and making sure that the creation does what it was designed to do. So then how do you exercise that kind of power over creation? It's not, so I, I'm not advocating here that creation ought to be left to its own. I'm not saying that, you know, you just we're, we're supposed to not touch it. Where every time we get in there, we spoil it. That's not what I'm saying at all. I actually think it's quite the opposite of that. I don't think creation is supposed to be left to her own devices, especially after the fall. It's just not the way it's meant to be. You might have heard that story. It was a, a man, he came up and he, he uh, saw a woman who had been working just tirelessly in her spectacular gardens. You know, she's pulling weeds and she's mulching and she's, you know, she's planting things. And this guy kind of comes along, along town, he sees her and he says, oh my goodness, look at these beautiful gardens. It's amazing. The, the splendor of what God has created. And she kind of looks at him with sweat pouring off of her brow. She's like, really? Because you should have seen what it looked like when God had it all to himself. You know, and there is some real point. Now, yeah, there's some splendor out there and some majesty that is just beyond breathtaking. You know, you go to the Grand Canyon, you see the Rocky Mountains, and you go to the, you know, Niagara Falls, and these things are breathtaking. And, and, but there's another type of beauty that only happens under the stewardship of humanity. The things that we create, not just the natural things, but you know the, the buildings and the cities and the technology and all of these things, these are a spectacular manifestation of our stewardship of the planet. In fact, I would argue that you can't see the fullness and the beauty of creation without the stewardship and the care, the power exercised over creation that humanity was given by God. So how is it that we can use our power to continue to defend and fight for environmental types of causes? It, of course, starts with awareness, because you have to ask, does the idea of creation care ever even enter into our minds? And for me, this is an ongoing struggle. You know, when we build things, when we do things, when we enjoy things, when we buy things, do we think about creation care? Is it even a category that we have that says, as a follower of Christ, creation care ought to be a part of our theology of the world. I think for many of us, in the way that we grew up, we simply don't even have an awareness. Maybe you're more of a politically minded person. Maybe you're a politician. And I would say then, are you using your sway, your power, to fight 
for God's created order. You know, maybe some of you will be activists and write letters or you'll educate the rest of us in the Christian community on the things that are of the most pressing importance. Or maybe you're a business person here. This is a vital role because it's very often the, the sort of uh, back and forth relationship between industry and consumers that creates the vast majority of our environmental problems. So as a, as a leader in industry, how are you conducting business in such a way that takes creation care into consideration? How can you use your industrial power, so to speak, for good? And consumers, how is it that we can use our buying power within the constructs of a very rich biblical theology of creation care? See, these are the kinds of things that often don't enter into our minds because we, we will often feel powerless to do anything. The, the problems are too big. You know, they're outside of, you know, they're above our pay grade. We can't actually do anything. And that's just simply not the case. Power, rightly used, is effective. You know, there have actually been dozens of species who have been brought back from the brink of destruction because of the complex network of private citizens and corporate awareness and government controls working together to take species off of the endangered list. The tigers, the gray whale, black rhinoceros, the savannah elephant, mountain gorillas, stellar sea lion, peregrine falcon, bald eagle, and on, the list goes on and on of creatures that were almost completely wiped out. But because of the godly exercise of power, have been brought back. This is good. And maybe there will be some of you here who will dedicate your nine to five, whatever that is, your career to environmental concerns, to conservation and to preservation and to restoration, sustainable living for an increase in global population. These would be noble pursuits for followers of Christ. I think that Christians, we ought to be at the forefront of the environmental movement, adding our distinctly Christian view of creation and stewardship as priests. I'm not saying that every Christian is going to become an environmental activist or anything like that. Not at all. But some will no doubt and should no doubt find their voice there. Creation was made for us and we were made for creation. We also see God's goodness toward creation, his goodness toward creation. God set it up. We all understand that. Look back at Psalm 104, verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. So that's the idea we have, that God kind of created the whole thing. And if you're a deist rather than a Christian, you would say he created it, he set it up, and he just kind of let it go. Now he's just sort of left it to, you know, its own devices. He kind of wound it up and said, good luck, guys. You know, don't break it. You know, that's, that, that's kind of the, the idea that many people have about God's involvement. But that's not what the psalmist says. He didn't simply set it up in goodness. He actually continues with ongoing care. Look at verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens humans' hearts, 
oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There are birds, there the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor, until evening. Time and again, you'll come across these passages, and it shows that God has this ongoing care for his creation and for all of his creatures. He actually loves them and cares for them, and there's goodness that he shows toward it. There's even this abundance in the, in the creation, and this kind of, kind of over-the-top creativity. Look at verse 24. How many are your works, Lord, in wisdom? You made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. He creates all of these swarms of life. He's got all of this diversity, all of this creativity. It actually is a kind of abundance that seems indulgent. It's excessive. You know, I, heard, I was reading somewhere that there, was, there are 300,000 types of beetles. I'm like, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't imagine there, how many, how many beetles did you even think there were in the world? There's 300,000 types of beetles. I'm like, that. how many beetles do you need? You know, what do you need, 10 types of beetles? Like, what do you need, really? You need 300,000 types of beetles? But, you know, this just, this points to the kind of a God that we serve. He's, he's indulgent and he's over the top in his creative goodness. Just makes me wonder about the diversity that will be found in the whole of the universe if this is the kind of a God we serve. So how is it that we are exercising our goodness toward creation? See, the creation ought to flourish under our care, if it flourishes under God's care, and if he in fact has entrusted it to us as his priests in it, then it ought to flourish under our care. And goodness ought to flow to God's creatures and to humanity because of us. Remember, creation was made for us and we were made for creation. Now we know that sin has broken the planet. Our own rebellion and the impact of sin in the world and now we work to restore what was broken. This is a huge part of the gospel message, the restoration of what was broken. Some of you, you know, you might have seen this. Trevor told me, he goes, you're showing a lot of pictures of animals lately. I don't know what's going on. I have this whole like animal thing going right now. And so it's probably going to end up with like new family members. But, <laughs> but, um, but uh, so, you know, you've, you've heard this story about this uh, creature that was found. They didn't know what it was, right? They thought it was probably a dog but they couldn't tell from looking at it because it was just this wreck of, of a creature. It could barely eat. It couldn't really hear what was going on. They, it really didn't walk. It sort of like, it sort of slithered in this odd way. They couldn't tell head or tail. And so someone started taking a razor to it and they started kind of finding out what was, what was under it. And then they got to the head and they found out that hair had just so grown into the ears that they had to like pull it all out. The animal couldn't, couldn't even hear. And they start to see the face of a dog and they start to shave it through and try to, you know, nurse it back to health and take care of the nails. And they find that the reason it was slithering is because the hair had so fully grown around it that it had tied up its legs. 
It was all in knots and matted, and, and, and so somebody is cleaning all this off and shaving it, and underneath, underneath two pounds of hair, they found this, this cute little puppy, this cute little dog, right? You see, now, you have to go, oh, and like a little tear has to form because otherwise you have no heart, you see? But, you, and, but, but I see, that's a good thing because, because this is the redemptive thing that goes on. You know, you take what happened, the brokenness in the world, and suddenly there's some restoration, there's some redemption, and it's an echo. It's an echo of the redemption that we have in Christ. And this echo of redemption is so important. It's so powerful because it's really, why do we go, oh, because, because it's what Christ did for us. It's what later we're going to go to the table. It's what the table represents. It's the redemptive work. You see, Christ found us overgrown with sin and with rebellion and with hatred toward people and with hostility toward the planet. And he, he found us in this decrepit state, barely able to walk as we were intended to death to the real cry of the needs around us and to the, and to the, our own, the longings of our own heart. And suddenly Christ comes in and he starts shaving back the hair in this incredible redemptive work and he, he, he opens up our ears so that we can hear and he clears out our eyes so that we can see and he, he cuts away the fur that's tied us up so that we can finally walk again in the fullness of our humanity. There's a redemptive thread throughout the whole of the scriptures. And this is the goodness of God toward us. This is the echo of Christ's redemption. So how is it that you are tending to how is it that you are restoring the goodness of creation? How are you doing it personally? You see, Christians, we offer a distinct and an important voice when trying to exercise our care over creation. You know, for instance, we will rarely embrace the extreme advocacy for animal rights, equating animals with humans. We won't, we won't fall into that particular error. But I would imagine that we would be on the forefront of saving endangered species because every single one was created by God and represents his glory in a unique way. And the loss of it is the loss of the glory of, of a unique manifestation of God's creative genius. How, would how could Christians ever tolerate that? We would never want to see that happen. We would, we would value those lives, those lives very highly. Though we might be concerned and are rightly concerned about population growth. Christians will do it from a pro-life perspective. See, we offer a unique voice in these conversations. We're not going to see humanity's impact on the planet as inherently evil, as an extreme environmental position might. But we will see the need to hand off a healthy planet to the next generation. Because how do you care for your neighbor? How do you love your neighbor if you don't hand them a planet that can care for them? One riddled in poverty is not a way to love our neighbors. And if that's who we've handed off, you don't just love your neighbors who are here today. What about our neighbors who will be born tomorrow and in 20 years and in 50 years? How do Christians love those neighbors? See, we add a great deal to the conversation. We add the God perspective and we add the Jesus redemptive perspective. And in everyday life, we get to exercise goodness toward creation. And you can come up with a whole bunch of different examples and they'll be your own. And each person is going to have to find their own. There's the recycling and the free trade commerce and hybrid cars or organic produce or buying local or not using pesticides. You know, there's hundreds of examples of ways that we can integrate these things into our daily lives. But it can even go beyond that. 
If you're a creative, how are you as an artist? How are you as a musician? How are you taking the beauty of God and making it, that making its goodness known to the broader world? How are the builders and the engineers and the architects, how are you practicing your craft in a way that brings and enhances the beauty of the creation? These are the kinds of questions that we can be asking ourselves because God experiences happiness in creation. Look at verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his work. So God rejoices in his creation. This is a whole Psalm 104. This is all the way at the end of this Psalm. Psalm 104, he says God rejoices in it. He rejoices in us, yes, but not just us. God apparently rejoices in the rivers and in the trees and in the oceans and in the critters. And when we work to do what God would have us do in the creation, it makes him happy. How, as Christians, would we not be passionate, passionate about that? Fortunately, there is a growing movement within Christian churches that will raise awareness and engage to, to help us engage in creation care, books rolling off the presses and articles and all of that kind of stuff. And we hope that all of us will start to, to, to get uh, aware, to start to get involved and engaged in some way. But you're going to have to find your own contribution. Everyone will find their unique voice in this. It's not going to be, you know, it's no, there's no one size fits all. But there will be practices and there will be changes that every single one of us can make and there are ways that we can conduct ourselves in our businesses and in our hobbies and in our, in, our, uh, in our consumption. There are things that we can do that we can take creation care and put it back into our theology of this world as followers of Christ to go after this redemptive thread and to see the glory of God in all of its majesty. This is the way that we get to function more fully and completely as priests in this world. Would you guys pray with me here? Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to do this more and more. Make us aware, Lord, as we seek to come to know you more fully and completely and to live, you, live out obedience to you. I'm asking, Lord, that you would help us to find our voice, stir up our hearts in the ways that you desire us to live. And give us your wisdom. These, these issues are complex and difficult. Give us your wisdom, Lord as to what it, what it is you would have us to do and how you'd have us to live. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.